Welcome to this week's episode of the Good Luck Club podcast. Our mission is to help 1 million people start a business of their own and ensure anyone out there starting a business never feels alone doing it. I'm proud to be coming broadcasting live from the Belsize Park Library. We believe libraries are not part of the past, but part of the future. That's why we're based here, trying to help this library's knowledge come direct to you in your ear. If you go to any libraries in your community today, give them some love. They're suffering right now. And from our perspective, the knowledge that libraries have been providing for hundreds of years is something that we need to make sure stay alive in today's world. My entrepreneurial guest today is Pippa Murray, founder and chief squirrel at Pip and Nut. Pippa, welcome to the show. Oh, so good to be here today. So nice to see you. Likewise. Well, maybe you could start off by telling our audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So obviously I'm Pip and I'm the Pip in the Pip and Nuts. Um, And, you know, Pip and Nut is an all natural nut butter brand that I started just over almost six years ago now, actually, towards the end of this year and very much came at it from a consumer perspective. I had not worked in food and drink. I'd never run a business, never been on my radar. But I remember shopping the category or just the shelves, what I thought of the shelves back then. And I was a bit of a peanut butter obsessive, partly because I ran all the time. So I used to do lots of marathon running and it was my like perfect post running snack on toast. But when I was shopping, every single product that I picked up had palm oil in it. And if it didn't have palm oil in it, it also had sugar. And, you know, I just felt that this this category, this product was both totally delicious, but at, the mo- at that particular time, it just wasn't being doing, it wasn't being given justice. And so for me, when I sort of looked at the space, I was like, okay, not only are there some unhealthy brands on this shelf, but there's also very little innovation happening here. And every single brand that I picked up was really boring or really Americanized. And I was like, there's definitely a gap here. And I, I think... You know, when you're like looking for, you know, you're you're looking around supermarkets. I think it's very rare that you you see these days like real gaps in the market. And I remember just thinking, I feel like there's an opportunity here. And yeah, it started really from that spark. And and I went on to start at a market stall, made it from my kitchen for a few months, and then scaled it up, and then launched it into uh, Selfridges, which was our first customer. And that was took about two years that process, but. Like I said, I was a theatre producer before I started this business, so really could not have come at it from, a, uh, you know, from a really quite foreign angle. I really didn't know what I was doing when I started out, um, which has kind of been what I've enjoyed so much about it is that huge learning curve that you have, particularly at the start. But, you know, you're always learning, I think, through through a business that you're growing. And did you feel like you were an entrepreneur? Did it just suddenly dawn on you that you were? Yeah, it's funny that question. I think it's a really good one because I I don't think I've ever felt like I was always going to be an entrepreneur or start a business. I don't think it was something that was particularly on. Yeah, I, I think it's not something that I was born with. But then sometimes I reflect back and I can see some of the traits, I think, that that very much naturally lend itself. So I'm very competitive. I'm also dyslexic, which I think also brings an element of creativity um, and also that determination. You know, I remember vividly getting like regular zero out of tens on my spelling tests and being so frustrated and it would just spur this like determination in me. And I think that just stuck ever since. So, yeah, I guess in answer to your question, no, I don't think I always I was born an entrepreneur, but I do think um, I have traits that naturally lend itself to it. 
Were your parents entrepreneurial? No, not at all. So my dad was a GP and my mum was a nurse. So again, like business in my house was not discussed. In fact, I'm the only, I've got three older sisters. I'm the only one that's turned to the dark side of business. They're all in public sector, you know, charity or, or government. And yeah, so it really feels like such a random tangent in lots of ways because it, it wasn't something that was in our kind of day-to-day conversations at home. But one thing I did kind of f- sort of later on as of once I'd started the business, I did speak to my dad quite a lot about the company. And actually he was a GP. He ran, he had two practices that he was a partner in. So in lots of ways, he he did have that experience of, of running a business, if you like. It's just not for profit like ours is. So um, yeah, not at all. That's a very interesting distinction there. I, I, I find it fascinating. You're actually in a business that makes people healthier in a way. Yeah. You're selling products that help people be healthier, enjoy yeah. the, the energy the food brings them. And so in a way, it's not far that far from what your father did. No, lots of ways. And I think that point around food that's healthier, I think food played, and I, I know a lot of families are the same, but played such a pivotal role in, in my childhood and um every single night we'd have a family meal when I was from the age of 12 my mum decided that she didn't want to cook anymore and she made me and my sisters take a night each and we all used to cook and it was all part of the at the same time as the Jamie Oliver revolution of like cooking at home and it just I found it really inspiring and I think that was something for me whilst like I say there were little threads of like um, similarities I think with obviously my my dad and I but at the same time I think it was that like foundation with food just being such a like central part of my family and that bringing that that's also I think what naturally led me into this industry and and made me feel quite confident in it because it has been so much part of my lifestyle. I wonder what it was like when you uh, told your family your sisters and your mum and dad that you were going to do this business what was the reaction around the table? Yeah I mean peanut butter it's a niche isn't it within a niche it's a uh, especially almond butter you know I, I remember my mum actually she um she she was part of the WI so she used to do lots of like making chutneys at home so again maybe another similarity there um and I remember she I think she for at least the first year or two assumed that I would just be kind of doing a market still sort of type-esque business a bit like what she had been doing and I think when I actually quit my job they were pretty shocked and although they've always been supportive and like always had my back you know my dad gave me a 5k loan to get me off the ground when I first started so they by no they absolutely backed me but I'm sure there were conversations behind being like oh this is a bit strange and I'm not sure if they spoke to their friends much about it for the first couple of years so like it's a bit odd really or maybe it's a phase I, I think they were like maybe it's a phase she'll get over it in a couple of years time um but yeah no they they are my biggest cheerleaders and my mum has in that when you open up the fridge and and the cupboards literally like tens of jars just sitting there like and she does eat it but you know and you're like what are you doing with all this product that's lovely isn't it you need, she buys you need it one, as well. just keeping it in the cupboard for you is just a way of showing they're <laughs> supporting you right yeah exactly i think it's um you know anyone that comes in the house gets sent away with a jar <laughs> so <laughs> she's helping my sales that's for sure what about siblings how how do they uh, how do they view what you're doing do they do they think you're crazy or they see that you're getting less crazy the more successful you get I think it is funny, isn't it, that um, 
and I certainly say this was the case with my my sisters is that at the start I think it's really difficult for people to understand really what it is that you've got in your mind that you're looking to create and only until you got in the market and you started to evolve the business and grow do they start to say the penny probably drops a bit more and they realize it's not just a product you're selling it's a brand you're creating you know you're running a team it's you know it's it's not as simple as just like put a jar on a shelf or you know sell a product it's it's the complexity that comes within that but no I think really they really are so proud and I think um the amount of text messages I get from my sisters who will say my friend's friend just sent me this picture of this jar your products and in our office and I get all these like messages from like friends and family but particularly my sisters um and at probably pretty much every every single one of them has helped at some point on some trade trade fair stand event stands sampling in store cheap labor so yeah they're pretty yeah exactly i milk it as much as i can i think it's such an important point i want the listeners to pick up on as well i think having family support is so crucial i do see a lot of people for example with partners this happens more than your mum and dad but with partners sometimes they don't support you in the business and that's so important i think i mean without that support sometimes it can chip away at your enjoyment of the business if they if they're happy for you and enjoying you enjoy it even if you're working long hours they can be acceptant of it but I, I think that's such an important element having that support even if at first they're not sure because they're worried mm. about you quitting your job the fact that your father still gave you five thousand and supported you that that's just so crucial yeah and it's such a privilege isn't it to have that to have totally. that foundation that and also a bit of the ability to be able to fail and it be okay and I think that gives you that confidence to be able to say screw it, I'll just try, give it a go. And and I know a lot of people don't have that. And I think do sometimes, I certainly take that for granted in terms of that just, yeah, family family support network who you can call on a Friday night when you've had a terrible week is so valuable. Um, and yeah, I think it's why I think mentorship generally, if, if there are people in this world, which there are, that are less privileged and don't have that, um, you know support network i think that's where entrepreneurs like yourself and i have that responsibility to i think provide it for them and give them that support because it it is a really tough thing to do at the start at least but it's always you know highs and lows no i, I couldn't agree more actually my 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 mother i wanted to be an entrepreneur at 15 years old my mum kicked me out because that's what i wanted to do and in a way yeah. um she was trying to stop me do it but it actually spurred me to uh, prove her wrong and go out and make it work so with or without the family support they can bring benefits both ways and uh but it's it's interesting yeah definitely i like i always think about um the t-shirts we can make from the quotes that our entrepreneurs that come on the show say and i think we've got one from you already screw it give it a go you know i think that's that's really awesome how did you end up with that attitude because a lot of people you had a, a fantastic job at the science museum and you you know you clearly enjoyed it from the way you described it but you know what made you give up that that role and like just go for this kind of gamble yeah I think for me I always whilst I enjoy my job I always found it frustrating when you couldn't really be the you couldn't really own your direction you kind of have to crawl up the ladder to kind of progress and actually I found that really like limiting and I found the pace there you know it's a really inspiring place to work but it just didn't have the pace that I needed I and the creativity and 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 flow and there was also to some extent like yeah I think I'm a pretty independent person and I think I and I like being self-sufficient and I actually find that exhilarating and and 
uh, whereas I think a lot of people maybe find that actually more terrifying on the other spectrum so yeah for me it's 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 really a case of also when something gets under your skin you just can't forget about it and it almost feels like more of a risk not to do it than to to do it if you know what I mean like Mm. you know when you feel like it's so clear what what your job is to do and and you can see the brand you can see the product range like you can see the opportunity it's like oh I can't not do this if I if someone else comes out and does it I'll be so annoyed so yeah it's it's that trait I think yeah it's an interesting trait and I think it's the kind of concept that I think uh, at the end of your life you only regret what you don't do and so yeah. there's also reminding yourself of that to spur your spur you on to take some risk but I, I just I'm just trying to imagine when you sit down and you think about breaking into this F&B food production and food distribution business it, it must have been quite daunting yeah for sure and I remember particularly looking for a manufacturer which is a, a quite a a difficult landscape to navigate particularly I think I was 25 at the time when I was starting to go and visit factories to see if they could make the products that I was wanting to create and you know they're quite old school pretty male dominated not particularly young or dynamic so you're coming into and and an environment which is filled with acronyms and jargon and you know quite technical in lots of ways and that that is intimidating and I I would say there's an element of like the only way the only way to learn something is to just throw yourself in at the deep end sometimes and I think you'll have a number of awkward uncomfortable conversations but over time it's like that chipping away that eventually feel like actually I understand what I'm doing now but I think food is a a a one which over time I've actually I think sometimes I was a bit naive particularly at the start about how easy it would be and actually when you think about food you've got to make sure and this is like a really obvious thing to say but you're making a really safe product and you've got a real responsibility there and actually for me we make a product with allergens you know peanuts are like super dangerous to some people so those sorts of things that actually sometimes if I probably overthought it too much at the start I'd never do it so there's an element of like the naivety that you go into something almost being like yeah, you, you don't have all the fear. And actually some people I think that have already worked in say food and drink and then go on to then launch a business in in the, in the sector that they've worked in, I think sometimes freak themselves out and don't do it because they realise it's quite a difficult thing to do. And so sometimes not knowing what you don't know is a good thing, but can at points lead you into some awkward conversations. I certainly had quite a number of those with factories when I was speaking to them when I was just starting out. That's a really interesting point. I, I I agree with you. Not knowing things can sometimes be a good thing, because if you, yeah. it's, it's almost like you see it as a each challenge as a learning experience. That's the worst that happens. You learn something, even if it doesn't work. But I think that's quite a that's good mindset it. too to go out and start something, especially something as big as you know building a, a product range. Uh, that concept, a lot of people have the idea for a food product. I mean. Yesterday, we, we spoke to 10 entrepreneurs and, and six of them had product-related ideas. You know, and, and, yeah. food and food and beverage is a popular one because people love food. But it's so hard. Like, and you, It's interesting you talk about the manufacturing as, the, kind of as that, the first step that you have to take to get that product sourced and made. And any learnings there that you can share with the audience? I mean, the main thing, and I think people, particularly in food and drink, when you're starting out, almost forget that the product really is king like spend the time really making sure and being honest with yourself that what you're making through your partners is genuinely better than your competitor set and sometimes you can fix like, a little bit too much on all the the glossy bits the packaging the you know social media whatever it is 
But if your product isn't good and if you've not got a solid supply chain and it's really boring, but what your your business won't succeed. And and I think that's an important point to labour because yeah, you you shouldn't rush that that particular part of the process. But when trying to find a factory, I think it's amazing how much is based on a bit of gut feel, but also um, obviously the questions and knowledge that you you ask um, of the factory. But the key thing is when you do go and meet the manufacturers is that you feel that they are genuinely excited by what you're doing and that they're on board with it. And I've met lots of factories and some are amazing to work with because they are aligned with what your goal is. They understand what the journey that you're on with them and there'll be other people that just won't. So I think those initial conversations, you know, when you get that belly, that kind of feeling in your belly that you're like, yeah, this feels good. Normally that hunch, I think particularly in those scenarios are generally right. Um, But yeah, the other key things I think is, you know, that manufacturers don't necessarily advertise themselves. So it's often quite difficult to come find them. And I think I've learned over the years that, you've got to accept it will take time, but also use every no as an opportunity to then see whether or not they know anyone that might be able to make your product and use those kind of like constant kind of, I guess it's networking, isn't it? But really kind of referrals to see how you can kind of grow and see and find someone that can make the product that you're looking to create um, and just be really, really um, kind of as ambitious as you can be when you're talking to them. So get them excited, get them bought into the idea because actually in lots of ways, it's a real partnership. They're not winning your business. They, you want them to work with you and it's a two way street that they've got to impress you and you've got to impress them. So um, yeah, I think be clear with what you, what you're going to give them, what the volumes look like, because that'll be what they're interested in, but then sell, sell the brand to them like you would any retailer or customer, you know, you've really got to get them on board with your idea and, and, and hopefully then they'll work with you in a collaborative way. I think listening to your gut is a good, uh, another good point you're making. I think a lot of people forget to do that. They might find a supplier that can do what they want at the price they want, but that doesn't mean to say it's going to be a decent relationship going forward. And that's actually the most important bit, isn't it? Absolutely. And to be honest, it's sort of, I mean, they're going to be a really intrinsic part of your business. So you also want to have a bit, you want to have fun with them. You want to actually feel like they're excited. And if you have a factory partner that I actually feel is not like that, and it can really, really ruin the journey, I think. Yeah, we had someone pitch to us yesterday, the idea of having their own manufacturing in-house. What what do you think of that model? I think it's great. I think um, I'd love to at some point potentially have our own factory i think you have way more control over your products and how quickly you can get them out the door and things like that um i think it it requires i guess it's what your risk threshold is and and also what kind of products you're making but and by that i mean you know if you're building your own factory site then you're going to be investing millions to get that up and running to have a production line that has the efficiencies that you require if you're going to sell into retailers so it's a big upfront investment whereas obviously working with partners you can get out the door cheaper at first um so yeah i think it's good it's good to kind of work with partners in that sense because you don't have to stump up millions to get out the door um but like you say you have much more control you can have speed of of getting your products into um you know ideas into actual products much quicker which can be quite slow when you're working with manufacturing partners but yeah i think it's a brilliant thing to do and it, it it it's something that we're actually exploring i think over the next five years or so to think about that as well I was reading that you're in over 5,500 stores in UK and Ireland. That's uh, impressive distribution. But how did you get there? Um, it's taken a while. <laughs> it's taken six years. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, for me, the key, I think, to when you're thinking, right, I want to have a nationally distributed product range in supermarkets is like start at day one, build your distribution your key like flagship stores. So we started in Selfridges and we built our distribution into kind of independent stores in London and chose really cool, really beautiful stores to kind of be the like the window into our brand. And then slowly you start to build up your distribution and use kind of the proof points from the say Selfridges to sell into Ocado. And then you can use Ocado to sell into Sainsbury's and then Sainsbury's into Tesco and Tesco into Asda and Morrison's. And I think it's those building blocks. So it's very possible that you can win a listing with Tesco from day one, but is it the right thing to do when you haven't understood whether you've got product market fit or understood your customer properly? So it can help, I think, building up more gradually and then using case the case studies to sell into those retailers. And um, I think as well from when you're thinking about how you supply these retailers, starting small and then building up can help make sure you don't bite off too much that you can chew. So you, know, you can find yourself in quite sticky situations if you find that your supply chain breaks when you suddenly get a listing with 500 stores in Tesco and you've not got the experience to, to understand what's going on. So... Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a building blocks um, and certainly not overnight. But final point on this particular one, which I think is an interesting one, is that often when you speak to people and you say, oh, I've just won Tesco, they assume that's like the end of the that's game game over. You're, you're, you're set, you're, you're going to be good. But actually the hard bit really starts when you actually get into store and then you've got to make sure it sells. And that's actually the really hard bit because often it's never quite the rate of sale you were expecting. It can be a bit lower. And then you've got to work out how do you get your product off that shelf and that's when you need some smart people i think in your team to help you figure that one out i've been wanting to use this line um how did you crack that nut ah, i knew there would be a pun in there somewhere how did we crack that nut i think it comes back probably to my point earlier which is pay attention to your product so you know that's where you should start and you know, we use our, our packaging as our advertising on shelf. So lots of little things that we did, like like optimizing our packaging for the retail shelf, making sure every bit of like a shelf ready packaging is all, it makes it easy to shop. So the, sh- the consumer can go in and they've got five seconds to pick a product and they can easily say like, okay, that's a natural peanut butter. I will want that. So there's, I think start at shelf edge where you'll start to think, how do I get people's attention? And then you start to creep out and that's where you use in-store shopper media and you can start to then use advertising outside of store to then also pull people in. So it's kind of like this ripple effect outwards. Um, So, and also finally is make sure you have the right price, make sure you have the right range on shelf these things will be really important to make sure that you get the the rate of sale that you that you need to stay on that on that shelf how do you decide price point how do you figure that out yeah that's a that's a really tricky one i mean in the early days if i'm really honest we just benchmarked against competitors and kind of i kind of figured it out very crudely by saying well we want to be a premium to this category i think we could probably get away with this price (laughs) it wasn't really much more complicated than that to be honest Whereas now when we think about our pricing strategy, we do much more kind of a bit more insights. So for instance, we've used tools to understand like ask a thousand people where their thresholds are on certain pricing for certain products. And that can be quite useful because take an example, um, 
our almond butters are priced at four pounds and if they go down to three pound fifty or even three pounds that really changes the amount of people that be willing to pick that product up and so that's made us think do we need to change our pricing structure or sizing or whatever to make that possible um so yeah science and art i think a little bit because also i guess the part of having a brand is that you're you're building value into your business you've got a brand that is communicating and, and will be um communicating to a certain demographic and will they see value in what it is that you've created so um yeah not an easy thing to decide i feel like you've stood for hours in a supermarket aisle watching people walk past your product to see what happens <laughs> oh god yeah being in a supermarket is never quite the same once you've launched a product you're just constantly lurking in the aisles and now everything's online and i'm like constantly online browsing cardo's website browsing amazon like other people's websites yeah i I think there is something to be said though you touched on a really good point about some you know those sorts of things stand in store for two hours and stare at your like see what happens and how people shop your category your fixture it's totally free doesn't require any like fancy agency to do that you can just stand there and actually in the early days I used to do loads of sampling in like whole food stores and things like that and I spend most of my time just observing how people were shopping and it can tell you all sorts of interesting things from what else are they putting in their basket to um you know why they you can ask them afterwards like why did you ditch that product you put it back on the shelf like can you talk to me about why and I think those like at shelf interviews are brilliant for getting like little insights into behaviors and uh, ironically, it's also a way of marketing. If you actually ask someone in the store, they might not have even heard your heard of your product. I, I, I'm finding myself wanting to take your product off the shelves and put it on the checkout because it's most of the people seem to pick up things, you know, as they're leaving the checkout. I know I do. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, okay, look, there's something in the checkout aisle. I just grabbed that. I didn't think of that, or I forgot it when I was walking around the store. So it feels like location is so important in those sorts of transactions. Absolutely, visibility in store is like the number one thing. So. We spend a lot of time pitching to buyers to try and get us those gondola ends, those like end of aisle spaces, or to your point, in queue fixtures. Um, because people are, you know, a bit lazy and they kind of shop what they will always shop. And unless you interrupt them in some way, and that could be just having an end of aisle space, you, they might suddenly consider your product when they wouldn't have done before. So, yeah, people are definitely. Um, one to catch by by getting them at those points yeah i had a friend who launched a, a ladybird book and uh, we basically mm. went to all the bookshops and we took the books on the bookshelf <laughs> and we put them at the checkout and it really increased the sales it's, it's some, yeah. sometimes it's just yeah it's just one of those things isn't it but but how did you build the brand i mean it's got such a respected brand in the uk now how did you achieve that um i think it's i mean it started with having a great identity i think to be able to work with in the first place i mean we've got our logo is, um, you know, Pip and Nut, but the tail of the um, squirrel, which sits on the, in the logo, is kind of also sweeps into form the P. And so it's got so much personality. This, from a marketeer's perspective, it's just a dream because you've got this lovely little character, tone of voice and playfulness and all this kind of like... Um, you know, language that you can use around squirreling things away or foraging for this or, I don't know, whatever, lots of kind of squirrel terminology. But it just means that you've got this quite ownable identity that has a bit of warmth to it in the first place. And then I guess how we've marketed and how we built the brand is, well, initially it was all um, very much a grassroots approach. So we built, a, um, we were born in the digital age in terms of the business. So, you know, we've got 
about 170,000 followers now across our social feeds, one of the highest um, kind of in terms of followers for a UK food brand. So nurturing that was definitely the first point of call. And I would say a lot of that was built through word of mouth, which a lot of it was down to the fact that the product was good and people told their friends about it and the product looked nice. And so they'd take pictures of it and put it on Instagram. And that shareability of it was, was something that was really powerful in the early days. But we have done hundreds and hundreds of events sampling and tr- getting people to try the product because when it comes to food like you just can't beat someone trying the product and then being like that aha moment and they 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 hopefully will pick it up and buy it if they believe that it is delicious which it is um but yeah we did some amazing partnerships in the early days with like some nike and we do like partnerships with their their um we run london which was like women's events around 10ks and we do toast bars that would feed all the runners at the end of of their run and again finding moments where there's a relevancy and an opportunity to bring your brand to life and it's one of my favorite things actually is seeing how every time you do something new um you know you 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 start to build a real world around your your brand so it starts to come off pack and you start to get that touch and feel and sense um built around it um but yeah, and finally, most recently, we've just started doing above the line advertising. So now that we need the awareness, we really need to drive it as hard as we can. We need to start investing in media to do it. And I think digital and social only gets you so far. At some point, you do start need to actually put a bit of money down and, and try and get your reach um, to grow your reach to support your retailers. That's interesting. And I think sometimes it's also the brands you're working with seeing that you're advertising and can help add credibility as well right i mean it's, it's strange isn't it because I, I think people would crave to have your social uh, media feed but they do a lot of print ads but you do need to do both i mean there's a whole offline online piece too right? yeah totally piece. yeah but i think it's important to have that 360 things like you just mentioned as well my audience to pick up on i think partnerships are overlooked actually quite often when building businesses people do think about advertising um but they they don't think about partnerships very often so you know you working with nike and, and doing things around that sort of you know integration i mean i can see every time you buy some nike they should get some of your products tell me you, you know that kind of i know that's not what you did but that concept of like working with partners is something i think a lot of people don't think about i think that's a really interesting idea and how did you even think of that Well, that one was was great because it came from a, a really authentic place. I remember, well, obviously I'm a, a runner and I used to run a lot. And I remember emailing the Nike uh, running team, sort of brand team and and sort of saying, have you got any opportunities to be able to, you know, get involved? And and I think they loved the fact I was, um, the, the first few events that we sponsored were specifically um, trying to encourage women to get into running. Um, so they, it was the We Run, Run London in Victoria Park and it was like a lot of women doing their first ever 10k and I think they liked the fact that it was coming from a place that I was a runner I was female a young woman you know have just started out business and they liked the discoverability of the fact that my brand was an emerging brand and was also a perfect fit from a kind of post-run fuel which is true because it's exactly why I used to or eat peanut butter myself so that I think it's when the beauty of a really good partnership is when both sides are, are really are getting something from it. So I'm gaining the reach of Nike and their audience and their amazing experiential events that they put on. And what I'm bringing to the table is um, that kind of independence um, and kind of, like I said, kind of 
discoverability. They didn't want actually big brands like Coca-Cola and things like that at those events. They wanted things that were healthy and new and would would get people excited when they were in the in the kind of race village. So that was a brilliant one for that. So I think it's trying to find partnerships where they feel authentic in the same way that also if you were doing something with say some influencers you should work with influencers who maybe have already bought and tried and you know recommended your products to their audiences and then maybe you build on that and actually do a paid partnership but not doing it where they maybe have never tried it or have actually been talking about some other brand less great I think. I think it's another great insight you're you're sharing with the audience there. I think in sales, so many people think I've got a product and they just want to sell it to someone. They don't understand the best deals come when both sides get something out of it. I think that's a really yeah. interesting point that a lot of people overlook. You know, it's not just like you say, it's not just Nike could probably um, get anybody's products on board. And they, if they wanted just to give snacks to people, there's plenty of snack opportunities, right? But the fact that you were aligned with, you know, what you do, who you are, and what they were trying to achieve as a, a mission and as a brand, that, that alignment is actually what made the sale work, not the product itself, you could argue, right? I mean, of course, the product Absolutely. plays a part because it's who you are and it represents who you are and the brand represents the values that they have. But but that, that, that synergy of both sides winning, I think is really interesting. And again, in sales, yeah. people miss it, especially when they're starting businesses or trying to grow their business. <laughs> a lot of our audience have trouble growing their businesses. And nine, nine times out of 10, it's because they haven't really understood the sales process that you've just described there, in my view. It's yeah. really, really interesting you share that. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, I don't think £5,000 went very far. Um, how, how, <laughs> how, did you, how did you manage to scale up? How did you do it? Yeah, that didn't get me very far. It bought me a, a blender, a fancy blender and a few and some jars when I started out at market. Um, so, yeah, I had various different funding um, uh, funding rounds since the business started, but it started with that 5k loan and I got a startup loan as well. I think it was 10,000 pounds. And then I did a, a crowd cube round where I raised pre-revenue of about 120,000 pounds and then have gone on to subsequently do angel investment rounds, which are kind of, um, seven figure kind of rounds as well as most recently uh, about just over a year ago we did our first institutional investment and that was through a, a really great VC that we're, we're now who now is obviously involved in the business so yeah it's built up over time and um yeah I mean obviously the funding itself is is there to try, drive growth and over invest to drive that growth so you know I've certainly chosen the model which is is taking that route but it's certainly not the only one is it you know you could you can run these things profit profitably you just might have to sacrifice some of the growth you you could have got if you had a little bit more money to plug in yeah i mean it's an interesting discussion on its own uh, for the listeners to understand mm. I, I always think about it personally as like i'd rather have five percent of something that's successful than 51 percent of something that hasn't achieved its purpose and so you know I, exactly. I, there's something uh, i think very powerful in in being willing to sell equity to allow the business to get to people uh, quicker, um, especially if it's a business like yours that's, that's bringing value to the world. You know? So I think it's an interesting conversation for people to have with themselves. Yeah, there's, there's also a lifestyle business option, right, which means maybe you don't want investors and shareholders and so on. But but I actually think it's a good way to grow. And you 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 had no experience of raising money before you got into it, though, right? So that that's a pretty amazing uh, achievement there, to be honest. Yeah, and again, it goes back to my earlier comment where I definitely had some quite um, awkward conversations where I remember one particular, when I was just starting out, I thought I'd raise my first round of money through 
angel investors. And I remember going to this particular, and they're actually a VCT, so not actually an angel investor. And I, they went in and they asked me for my cap table, and I had <laughs> no idea what that was. And you know, like pre post money valuations. And I was like, Jesus, I've absolutely no idea what this bloke in front of me is saying. And you know, when you're like, do I admit to it in that meeting <laughs> or do I just blag it? I mean, mostly just blagged it. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's just a whole new set of, of language and, and world to kind of understand, but yeah. ultimately, particularly in the early days, you quickly realize that most investors are buying into you. And so if you are passionate about what you're doing and it makes sense and it stacks up commercially, then you've got a good chance of raising the cash. And I think you, as you do the different funding rounds, and I bet you've done lots of this, um, is that you learn something new each time. And often I find the questions that people are asking you are sometimes the most useful things to kind of interrogate afterwards and be like, right, how could I have done that better? Yeah, I actually okay, think, that's interesting. Uh, they asked me this and and you kind of pick it apart and you'll be like, right, I'm going to build that into my next deck. Maybe I wasn't very clear about that. Yeah, I think um, it can help you redefine the business sometimes too, right? They're asking questions. I've, I've always found, I mean, I've, I've invested money in businesses and I've raised money in businesses. And I've always found that if you ask, I mean, of course, you have to have the, the right caliber of investor. But if they ask the right questions, you can improve your business based on mm. the answer you give, right? Because they might have pinpointed something you've missed. So it can also be like a way of getting free consultancy. I've sometimes said to people, go raise money, not because you need it, but because you're going to get like honest feedback. If people are going to give you the money, they often are very honest and you really need that when you're building a business, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it, it points out your blind spots. Um, you know, you might be weak on one particular area and it forces you to address it. Did you find your young, your, your young, you start 25 years old going out there and starting this business, did you find there was age discrimination a lot of my audience are young, you see, and I'm just wondering if, if you felt that, if there was a way to advise them on that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think it did at points hold me back. I think it's not to say that obviously succeeded through and managed to push past it, but I think people do like a bit of track record, I think, particularly if you're talking about investment. I think they like to see that you've maybe done something before. But that's having said that, if you've done something before and you're quite young, that doesn't mean you, know, you can still do, you know, demonstrate that. Um, but I think age and probably being female and a solo founder and having not worked in food and drink, a lot of things, I didn't, no. to be honest, I have no idea why people invested in me in the first stage. Uh, cause it, it was a bit of a punt, I think, um, comes back to, I guess, like, can you have enough charisma to win them over, um, and enough resilience to take the knocks that you get along the way. Plus you have a brilliant product. I mean, that, that underpins and, it all, doesn't it? I mean, that's, um, I think. Yeah, it's it's very you're you're a great example for my listeners actually because because a lot of people you just listed a load of reasons why you shouldn't be successful today, and I and 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 I actually think they've all turned into your superpowers, right? That's what's made you different. You're fresh to the industry, you know. You're not necessarily thinking the same ways as the industries have traditionally thought. That's a superpower. But most people, as you say, oh, you haven't got any experience in the industry, so you shouldn't do it, right? So you're yeah, you're all there's an irony in that, isn't there? There is an irony in it, and I think that's something that I I I would love the audience to take away from from you from this point from this podcast because a lot of people out there will talk about things they want to do and then talk about the experience they don't have to do them and that can be a good thing i would say elon musk didn't know much about space you know he looked up and saw mm. it that's it you know sometimes that can be a good thing so um yeah you're very inspiring that's that's wonderful when you um, when you got into selfridges was that was that your uh, lucky break or how, what was your lucky break do you think 
that definitely was up there with that one of the lucky breaks I think if it probably wasn't for selfages a lot of those stories and you know I was saying the building blocks might have been more harder to kind of uh, achieve I think the real break the real break though was Sainsbury's when we launched into them we we'd launched just we'd launched in January and we, we went into Sainsbury's in November and I remember getting the call from the buyer and they were listing us in 400 stores with four products and yeah that's when you really start to feel like right this is it this is the big moment because you get to test your distribution can you sell product up and down the UK you know it's it's that for me was a real tipping point and they were a brilliant fit for us in terms of and yeah just it just works and, and I think Sainsbury's still today is our biggest customer they play a really pivotal part in in our growth and our growth journey so without them I don't think we would have you know we'd certainly wouldn't have achieved the same success that we have over the last few years because that's another interesting dynamic that your business has which is um, you have a b2b client and then you have a b2c client so you, mm. you actually um, that, that's an interesting dynamic because a lot of businesses you might sell direct to consumers through a B2C business, right? a business to consumer business. A business to business uh, model is, is different again, pricing wise, structure wise, distribution wise. So so that's 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 an interesting dynamic. How, how have you managed that? Yeah. And you know what, if I did do it again, I, I would love to avoid the retailers altogether, which hopefully none of them are listening because they're really we just hard said lovely, to work We just with. said lovely things about Sainsbury's. We, we love Sainsbury's, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure they understand we'd all like a direct relationship, right? Yeah, exactly. Because you get all the opportunity to deliver your brand experience through your own website, your direct consumer. You get to keep all the data and have all that insight at your fingertips instead of having to spend 50 grand a year on buying data from your retailers. Um, but I guess it comes down to when you are working with retailers, this is where oh, it's, so, it's such a boring comment, but you've just got to make sure that you're you've got to have a great product obviously, but you've got to make the margin structure all work and, and you need to be able to give them a decent margin. You need to be able to make a decent margin. And without that, you really will uh, just, it will be really difficult because you'll always either struggle to invest properly as a business because you don't have the margin or um, they won't want to invest in you because they've got a weak margin. So it's certainly something, a lesson learned, I think, in just making sure that, okay, you need to, create a great product but you also need to make sure you're making enough money and and all the people in the chain are as well because it's yeah key to making that particular one you know relationship work i mean just my uh, um, personal experience with retailing as well is there's a lot of politics involved in the sense that if you mm. went straight in at sainsbury's and then went to selfridges and said let's do something they'd be less inclined yeah. right because it's, 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 there's a, an element of exclusivity and so managing that well done <laughs> Um, yeah it's a bit of a minefield at points yeah I, I, do you sell online direct online to consumers yeah so i mean this year it's like with a lot of people it's completely exploded so we have a dtc business um but we also sell through ricardo and amazon as well but our direct consumer um has grown hugely i mean at the start of the year we were doing maybe it was a tiny channel for us for doing 10 grand you know a month at points during covid we were selling up to a hundred thousand pounds a month so it just increased like mad and it's still retained a really high level of sales even as we kind of in this slight transition period so yeah it's something that we're all having to learn because we're not our business model is like you say um selling to 
um, to retailers, not direct to consumer. And so there's a whole new set of learnings around how to work paid performance marketing and um, really make sure our D2C experience is up to scratch. So just just wondering how you got to where you are today. Um, did, what, did your education play a part? What was your education like? Yeah, so I, I went to a private primary school but then a state secondary and then went on to university, I think definitely played a part. And the reason why I mentioned the private primary school is because I'm, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I'm dyslexic and actually they picked it up really early. So I think I was about seven when they noticed that and, and I went and had a test and found out that I was dyslexic. So I think that played a really pivotal part. I was able to build mechanisms to help me manage it and, and not feel like it held me back too much. So absolutely. And then I guess, through my education, I mean, I studied, I was quite more into the arts than I was the sciences. Um, so, you know, did study things like art at school and um, really loved it. And then went on to study anthropology at university, which has obviously been not useful at all in any sense to my current job now. But um, it's certainly, I think, I don't know I think anthropology I mean essentially it's a social science isn't it you're learning and reading and kind of understanding people and society and I guess there's that curiosity in me generally um so has it played an intrinsic part in my ability to launch this business yes and no I think I've I've got a good education I'm very lucky to have that but has the stuff that I learned been applied into my company no (laughs) to be blunt if young people are listening and wondering go to university or, or start a business or go work or what, what do you think today's world if, if i were to do it again I, I i don't think i'd go to university i think that you can learn so much just by doing and being in a business or starting your own business i think you you'll learn more than you'll ever learn at university um i think obviously there are benefits to it and i think you get you know, life experience through university, which is is brilliant, but it's so expensive. I think I'm not sure if I would do it again if I knew that I was going to start my own business. You mentioned earlier the, the sole founder route. What what do you think about having a co-founder? Has that crossed your mind or are you happy with the structure? Do you think it's worked for you? Yeah, I've, I think I've been lucky that I've had like my first uh, main investor was also um, my mentor prior to that. And he's been brilliant. He's, he's really supported the company, but most importantly has been a real coach and mentor and, and real uh, crutch to lean on when I needed it. Um, so I think without him, I would have struggled, I think, to always be as resilient as I have been. And I think, I think I'd love to do another business and maybe, do it with a co-founder because I do think you probably have less of that pressure just on your shoulders and you've got someone to spar with and, and kind of, you know, I think particularly when it comes to things like people, when you're talking about, you know, people that you're hiring, I think it really helps to be able to like run things by someone else who really understands the detail in your company. But having said that, I love making all the decisions. It's normally quite quick to make a decision and it doesn't slow you down. Whereas I've got friends who I know who can, be tussling with something with their co-founder if they aren't aligned and that can really be quite frustrating not just for you but also your team what's your um mentor investor's name he's called giles brook um so he ran uh he's he was a ceo of um vita coco in europe middle east and africa and then he also was a founding partner in another business called bear nibbles which is like a fruit snacking brand 
so he's got loads of food and drink experience, um, which is why he's been so useful and helpful for me. So nice to hear that sort of story as well. I really, um, there's so many bad stories out there of investors that have not been good to founders. And so I think when you hear someone's been good and helped and they really deserve a shout out. And so thank you for highlighting that as well. I mean, for a lot of people out there, they're also nervous. They hear so many bad, you often only hear the bad stories of, mm. of, of investors that have gone wrong or, or even that, ma- that matter, mentors that have gone, gone wrong, relationships have gone wrong. So it's nice to hear one uh, that's gone so well. And, it's, and, and it can be a way, I think, for the listeners to pick up on. It can be a way for you to manage the loneliness of being a, a, a single founder. And so yeah. um, it, it does get harder as you grow the business to, of course, have a second founder come in because you get used to that quick decision making and all the benefits and so on. But, um, you know, you can, I guess, um, bridge it by by doing what you've done, having having an investor and a mentor, someone that you can trust um, to, to brainstorm and support you. So that's wonderful to hear that sort of positive news story, which I know won't get as many clicks as the negative news <laughs> stories, but but it's, it's still very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, so I, I guess... I'm always thinking about you know what's useful from your experience for, for the audience, and and if you were to kind of review all the things that you've done, and like you said, if you were to start again, maybe you'd think about being more B to C, for example. Is there anything else that springs to mind? Um, I, I'm always thinking like the brand you built, for example. Did you spend a long time on that name? How did you come up with the name? And are there any things you think spring to mind that that would be useful for people? Yeah, I mean, the name um, was just something I randomly came up with. And I'm, I think I was cycling to work at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, that, that works. So it wasn't hugely um, a lot of like thinking involved in that one, although there was to some extent. Um, I think probably my main thing and learning and wish thing that I wish I'd done differently is that just not rushed innovation so quickly. I've, or, you know a few things very well rather than like lots of things less well if you know what I mean right. and I guess my example of that is that we um well, I launched a range of almond milks about three years ago which we no longer have in our in our range at all because I rushed the product it got it out the door too quickly um didn't really fully think it through from how that would sit within our range and what it meant for us as a from a brand perspective and yeah, they just didn't sell. They just didn't sell enough and did it too early on in the business. Um, we just couldn't internally, very small teams support growing our core part of a business whilst also landing this whole new category, which is incredibly competitive. Um, and a product where I just didn't have the experience from a development perspective to be leading on it. Whereas in hindsight, I should have got, you know, a really great experienced food developer to really work with me because it was a very technical product to make. So yeah, I think um, sometimes you can be really hungry to just do everything. You've got so many ideas. You've got loads of innovation ideas, things you want to get out the door. But trying to be a little bit more constrained and think about, well, how can I do what we're currently do, doing better? So it's not about like saying do less, just do things better and go a bit deeper on on things. So Such good that's advice. That's a bit of a learning. Only experienced people that can really um, translate this. And when I hear it, I understand what you mean. I'm desperately racking my brain is it clear enough for the audience what you're talking about here it's so important i mean i the word that jumps out that's it's focus because mm. actually you know like you're saying there thank you for sharing that you know launching a product and it not succeeding um it's not easy for anyone to admit that they did so thanks for t- taking a moment to share that story and and i and i think it's important for people to understand i mean it's interesting because it's actually a food product in a category that you are linked to because it's you know it's a nut <laughs> and so yeah. it sounds like it should all be aligned 
right? Yeah. But in fact, it's completely different. And I think this is a big mistake a lot of people make. I completely agree. They, and another way of translating what you're saying for the audience, maybe to, to get the nuance of the importance of it, is like when you're doing social media, some people do all social media channels all the time. And I think it's probably better to focus in on one social media channel and crack it because they've all got their yeah. little idiosyncrasies, right? So, you know, it might seem like, well, just our social media is all social media, but actually the ones that do well, and I, your social media's done really well, I feel like you really focused in on one platform first, made that work, right? And 100%. Then, and, and so it's kind of the same kind of, uh, 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 why I'm trying to explain this point you're making in a really clear way for people because it's gold. It's so important. And, and, and yeah, I mean, go, going back to your younger self, I mean, you're still quite young but going back to your younger self and explaining that you know in business is, is really hard to also I'm sure at the time if someone said to you no hold don't do that milk product you'd be like no no it's fine we're going to conquer the world right yeah How to, exactly uh, and I feel like it's almost like a, mis- a lesson that everyone needs to learn at some point and right. yeah you yeah if you're headstrong and you've got ideas you just kind of want to get you want to do it your way and sometimes it pays off but I think more often than not, it doesn't. So, so the lesson is everyone should launch their own almond drink brand. <laughs> yeah, At least once in their life, right? I challenge you. It's really hard. <laughs> yeah, we challenge you to go launch your own almond drink. Love it. Okay, well, look, um, I could uh, talk to you forever. I'm conscious of time. We know our listeners give us an hour. So um, I'd love to have you back on the show another time. I think you've got so much knowledge. We, we could go deeper in one particular area like marketing and, and so on. I'd love to talk to you about all of that. Um, but I, I'm just going to close off the podcast by asking this, kind of, I guess, a light question. Other than um, you know, going back and telling your younger self to, uh, to, do, to do less, what, would you, what else would you tell your younger self? I think stop and enjoy it a bit more. Um, one of the things which I do regret is I didn't take that many pictures or, um, you know, I was so busy trying to like grow it. And maybe this will always be the way when you're starting out. But uh, the reason why this springs to mind, because my first employee actually left yesterday. He um, has sadly gone off to another company, but it was quite an emotional thing to kind of recap the last six years of him helping me grow the business. And I was digging around. I was trying to find all the early pictures and early stories. And I was like, if we just, didn't take any and we're just so focused in on growing the company and I almost regret that actually like some of the the early stuff I wish I'd captured a bit more because I just more maybe it's the nostalgic person in me it's great to have those memories and and enjoy the journey like sometimes I think the downside of an investment when you go for it is they always ask you what's your exit plan and they'll ask you to put a number on it and say when are you going to sell it how many years and it makes you end up thinking about that instead of thinking about what am I doing now and am I enjoying it? Like, you know, you start going towards that goal when you should just be thinking about the here and the now. Um, so that's probably my other tip is just really enjoy what you're doing and just be lucky and grateful. If you've got a business that's running and operating and being successful, just check in with yourself every so often and be like, yeah, I'm really grateful that this opportunity is, is unfolding in front of me. You'd be such a, well, you are such a great mentor. Uh, You've got so much knowledge. It's just mind-blowing listening to you. And it's and you've given me goosebumps just listening to that because I think it's so true. I mean, I've had the same. First employee I ever had left, I cried. I cried oh, like, yeah. like, a, like a baby. <laughs> and uh, I actually wonder, so what, attachment. I wonder what was wrong with me. You know, like, it's, it's just not, is it normal that someone leaves you, you, you cry like a baby? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's strange, isn't it? It's, 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 a, it's a, an interesting attachment that you get. And, and, and you're so right. I think, you know, that's a, such a good point 
for people to pick up on. You know, if you're if you're building something, I always envy people that um, put up pictures of you know, their first ever bottling of their drink, for example. And you're like, how did you? How did you know to do that? I was, you know, whenever I built a business, it's always I'm so busy wanting to make sure the bottle got out the door and it got on the truck and it got yeah. to the, you know, you, you're taking the picture of the bottle getting, you know, put the drink point. It's the last thing you're thinking of, kind of, you know. 100%. And, yeah. Um, maybe after the end of the day, when you sat down, you're like, damn, I should have taken that picture. But that's the best you get to. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think we're saying hire a photographer day one. Um, when yeah, you start a business it, yeah permanent <laughs> photographer to shaddy yeah, and capture all the lovely memories it's connor here who uh does all the photography mm-hmm. for me you know we can put his link down below if anyone wants to hire a photographer when they're starting yes. a business he's he's available so uh so let us know uh, he's busy and expensive but available but um but look one wonderful um wonderful to hear your story pippa and, and i really personally enjoyed your insights and i hope our audience do too and thank you for your time and and appreciate you coming on the show uh, today. i've been speaking with you thank you for having me I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Pippa's insights, in my view, personify exactly what it is to be an entrepreneur. If you found what she had to say interesting, do me a favor, go through to her social media, follow her products, give her a comment, and if you're feeling really generous, go to one of her 5,500 locations and buy a product, or even better, go buy it online. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Good Luck Club podcast today. We know you have thousands of podcasts you could be listening to and you take the time to listen to us. We feel incredibly lucky. Yeah.